Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, in 1997, Dr. Beverly Tatum published her acclaimed book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? and other conversations about race. The work explores an enduring American reluctance to acknowledge the realities of racial identity development and racism. For the last 20 years, it has served as a catalyst in efforts to address those realities. In her wide-ranging career, Dr. Tatum earned a PhD in clinical psychology, developed an influential course in the psychology of racism, and served as president of Spelman College for 13 years. She spoke at a Town Hall Seattle event at the West Side School in West Seattle on December 3rd. Here, Town Hall's Edward Wolcher introduces Dr. Beverly Tatum. Dr. Beverly Tatum is a scholar, teacher, author, and race relations expert. She is the president of Spelman College and former acting president of Mount Holyoke College. <laughs> we have some Holyokes in the room. <laughs> uh, Tatum is nationally recognized authority on racial issues in America and a licensed clinical psychologist. She has toured extensively, leading workshops and presenting papers and lectures on racial identity development. She was the four 2014 recipient of the American Psychological Association's Award for Outstanding Lifetime Contribution to Psychology, and she has been named the 2018 winner of the Gitler Prize by Brandeis University. In May 2007, Dr. Tatum released her book, Can We Talk About Race? and Other Conversation in an Era of School Resegregation. But she's here this afternoon to talk about the 20th anniversary reissue of her seminal text, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race? Please join me in giving a warm town hall welcome to Dr. Beverly Tatum. Thank you very much for that warm introduction and this warm welcome. I'm delighted to be here and excited to have what I'm calling a conversation. Now, let me just say, I'm curious, I'm going to just take a quick poll. How many of you are familiar with the earlier version of my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race? Someone's holding hers up, yes. Uh, quite a few of you are. It has a long title. This book's got a long title, and it's still long, 20 years later. The title is still long. <laughs> and because it has a long title, many people refer to it by the first half. I sometimes refer to it by just the first few words. Sometimes I call it, why are all the black kids? I don't even, um, but why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria is how many people reference this book. And I'm talking about this because I think it's actually the second half of the title that is most important and other conversations about race. That really what the book is about is how we talk or don't about race in the United States and why we should, and why it matters. And so I, whenever I have an opportunity to speak to an audience like this, I always like to emphasize that it's the conversation that's really most important to me. The C word in the title is the most important part. And even though I know you've come to hear me talk, I am here to tell you that you will be talking too. So just so you know. Um, the title of the book 
does emphasize conversation. And when I wrote it back in 1997, it was in part because I was doing, I was teaching a course on the psychology of racism uh, back at Mount Holyoke College at that time. And I was doing a lot of workshops with teachers and parents around the country, schools and school districts around the country. And many people would ask that question. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? But they asked other questions as well. And when I decided to write the book, it was because I really wanted to inspire conversation, to break the silence about race. Now, I wanted to spend just a few minutes at the very beginning of our time together talking about why these conversations seem to be so hard to have. They were hard in 1997. I'm gonna argue that they're even harder today. We'll come back to that <laughs> as to why that is. But certainly, they are difficult. And I wanna just take a moment to get some information about all of you here in this audience. So this is where our conversation begins in some ways. I want to ask you to think about an early race-related memory. And then I'd like you to just raise your hand, knowing that I'm not gonna ask you to tell me about it, um, just so you know, there's no risk in raising your hand here. Um, but raise your hand if you've thought of something. Okay, a lot of hands up, almost everyone, if not everyone. And so now what I'd like to know is how old you were at the time of the thing you have remembered. And this will be a little chaotic. I want to apologize in advance to the people recording, but just call out some ages. Okay, I heard as young as four, I, as whole, I heard as old as 18, but I heard a lot of four, five, six, sevens. I heard eight, nine. I want to know, is there anybody who has a memory younger than four? I see a couple hands. I have one at the age of three, and maybe some of you join me in that. Um, I heard someone say 18. Anybody got an early memory in which they're older than 18? Okay, a couple of you do. Do you want to call out ages? 19? So um, I didn't quite hear the, the second age, but maybe it was in the 20s. Um, the fact of the matter is there's no right answer to this question. It is completely determined by where you grew up, what your life experience has been. So for many people, they're you know, early memories. Um, but for other people, I've heard as old as 35. It really depends on your social context. But if we were to graph the ages represented by all of you in this room, my prediction is that we would find a cluster around those early elementary school years, the fives, the sixes, the sevens. Raise your hand if that describes you, that you've got an early elementary school memory. A lot of you, okay. So now what I'd like to know, again, I'm gonna ask you to call some things out. I would like to know what emotion, if any, is associated with the thing you remembered. So I heard confusion, I heard guilt, I heard shame, anger, rejection, fear, embarrassment, ex exclusion, pain, exotic, curiosity, 
confusion. We've heard confusion a few times. Let, um, so I'm just going to summarize. We heard confusion. We heard anger. We heard fear. We heard shame, embarrassment, uh, rejection, exclusion, pain. I think I said anger. Um, I'm not sure if I heard it, but sometimes I hear fear. Uh, we also heard curiosity. I didn't hear it today, but sometimes I hear something like happy or love, depending if it's in you know a close relationship maybe. Um, but for most people, the words I've just mentioned are words associated with discomfort. So let me ask you another question. How many of you have experience, either through children you know, your own or somebody else's, with four, five, and six-year-olds? Okay, a lot of you do have experience with young children. I'm coming back to that in just a minute. What I want to ask now has to do with your memory. Keep focused on the memory you have. And I would like to know, by show of hands, if you had a conversation with a caring adult at the time that the incident occurred. That adult could have been a teacher or a parent, um, somebody older than you. Raise your hand if you did have such a conversation. If you look around, there are hardly, you know, maybe there are a dozen hands up total. Um, raise your hand if you did not have such a conversation. Okay, almost everybody's in the did not category. And I want to tell you that I was asking these questions 20 years ago, and the answers were still the same, right? No change there. However, many of you said you have experience with young children. So one of the things that I've observed about young children, tell me if you agree, these young children that I know are pretty candid. <laughs> you know, they don't filter much, right? So if you know four and five and six-year-olds, they are sometimes embarrassingly candid. They say and talk about things that sometimes their parents or other people in their lives wish they didn't, but they are pretty self-revealing. So I think it's very interesting that almost everyone here said, I remember an early memory during that time period. Not everyone, but a lot of you had a memory during that age. It made me uncomfortable in a variety of different ways. And despite the fact that we just talked about the candor of four, five, and six-year-olds, I didn't talk to anybody about it. I find that interesting. Why is that? Why do you think that is? I heard somebody say, because you've been taught not to. I heard somebody else say, shame. It certainly speaks to the fact that we learn at a very early age, four, five, six, that we're not supposed to talk about race-related matters. I'm 63. That's a long time, right? You know, my earliest memory is, is three. That's 60 years of experience with race-related conversations or race-related experiences. Now, I have gotten over my hesitation. <laughs> I, I talk about it a lot. But let me just say, many people, if you ask them to engage in a conversation, they get uncomfortable. A knot appears in that stomach. Um, there's, you know, sweaty palms. It's, I'm not quite sure I want to have this conversation. How many of you have had an uncomfortable adult conversation in your adult lives, have an uncomfortable conversation about race? Okay, a lot of people, 
a lot of people. And perhaps because of our early socialization, reinforced by our contemporary experience, there are many people who will say, let's just not talk about it. But my argument is you can't solve a problem if you can't talk about it. And it is very clear that race and racism in particular, racism is a problem in our society. So with that as our backdrop, acknowledging that many people are uncomfortable with this conversation, I am inviting you all here to have one. Um, which is to say that I'm going to talk a little bit, but then I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit more, uh, but then I'm going to open the floor for questions. And I hope we will have a dialogue that, in fact, is a productive conversation right here this afternoon. So let me tell you that um, I served as president of Spelman College from 2002 to 2015. And when I decided to retire from that role, many of my friends and colleagues asked me what I was gonna do. And I said, I'm gonna update my book. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and other conversations about race? And, <laughs> and they said, okay, well, that sounds interesting. Are the black kids still sitting together? Some people asked me. <laughs> And if you've walked into any racially mixed high school or even college, you probably know the answer to that question is yes. You will still see black kids and Latinx kids and Asian kids and white kids sitting clustered often by racial group membership. Not always, but often. And so when I would say yes, they do still sit together, then often someone would ask me, well, isn't anything better? And it isn't anything better question that I want to focus on this afternoon. So it's easy to say yes to the first question, are they still sitting together? Yes. Is anything better? That's more complicated. So let's just talk about that, unpack it for a moment. What's changed in the last 20 years from 1997 to 2017? One thing that's changed, demographics. The population has changed. So some of this change was in motion before the last 20 years, but it certainly has accelerated. When I was born, I was born in 1954. When I was born in the 50s, the US population was 90% white. In 2014, 60 years later, the school age population in the United States was for the first time majority children of color. That is a big change. It may not be visible in all parts of the United States, but certainly if you look at the totality, our demographics have changed quite a bit. I say in the book, we've got new faces, but we're in the same places. And by that I mean segregation is still persistent. In particular, school segregation is our public institutions are more segregated today than they were 20 or 30 years ago. I could tell you a lot about why that is. Uh, in fact, my book, Can We Talk About Race and Other Conversations in an Era of School Resegregation, is a lot about why that is. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right this minute, but if you've got a question, you can certainly ask it during the Q&A. But just take my word for it, more segregated today 
than we were 20 to 30 years ago. One of the reasons that that's true is because we have moved away from some of the school desegregation efforts, like Crosstown busing, for example. Or like, uh, certainly here in Seattle, you know all about the 2007 Seattle decision um, that said you can't take race into consideration relative to school assignment, and if you can't pay attention to how you're doing those assignments, you're more likely to be assigning by neighborhood, and if you assign by neighborhood and neighborhoods are segregated, you end up with segregated schools. So what does that mean? It means that despite the fact that we've got a much more diverse population, a population that's now about 18% Latinx, about 13% African American or black, about 6% uh, Asian, about 10% multiracial, we have uh, about 2% Native American, we have a population that is still young children who are still growing up apart from one another. Most white children are attending schools that are majority white, if not entirely so. Most black and Latinx children are in schools that are concentrated brown and black children, often also low income. So the continuing school segregation means continuing um, limited access to resources. What else is different? Well, over the last 20 years, we've seen a backlash against affirmative action. Um, I was uh, earlier this week in California. Calif it was in 1996, if I'm remembering correctly, that the California uh, legislature voted to eliminate affirmative action programs in all state-funded or government-funded uh, programs like higher educational institutions, for example, certainly government contracting. But particularly if we think about the impact on access to higher education, particularly in California, the flagship institutions, the UCLA, UC Berkeley, um, they saw a dramatic drop after those propositions passed to um, in the enrollment of students of color, particularly black, Latino, Native American. What started in California spread to other states, and so now there are close to a dozen states that have eliminated affirmative action programs in state-funded organizations. We also know that there has been um, a tremendous change in how we think about the economy, triggered by the collapse of the financial markets in 2008. So while in the early part of the 90s there was an expanding economy, the collapse, the financial collapse that occurred in 2008 dramatically exacerbated income inequality. Particularly in the context of home ownership um, in black and Latinx communities in particular, there was a dramatic impact in terms of high rates of foreclosure, um, certainly unemployment, and economists have said it was the worst loss of family net worth in US history in those particular communities. What else has happened in the last 20 years? Well, we hear a lot today about mass incarceration and the impact of mass incarceration, disproportionate uh, sentencing around drug laws. Those policies started in the late 90s. 
So if we look at the dramatic rise of the incarceration of black and brown men and also rising rates of incarceration of black and Latinx women, we can see that that trend really took off in the late 90s and has been in the last 20 years, a, a, a result of policies that got put in place at that time, get tough on crime, so-called policies. When I talk about these things, my friends say, well, surely something happened, something good happened uh, in this last 20-year period. Isn't there something you can point to? You're all looking a little depressed, let me just say. <laughs> um, um, well, we could point to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. <laughs> and many of us, you know, whether you voted for President Obama or not, there was a poll that was taken the day, the weekend after that 2008 election, where the vast majority of U.S. voters said they thought that the fact that the U.S. had elected its first black president was a positive sign of improving race relations in the nation. Now, there was a significant uh, uh, portion of the population in this same poll done by USA Today that 24% said they felt frightened by the result of the election. And I thought frightened was a very strong word. You can feel concerned or worried or anxiety, but frightened seemed kind of strong to me. But in fact, what we know looking at this from a psychological point of view, is that when basic assumptions that you have are disrupted, it does generate high levels of anxiety, maybe even fear. And certainly for many of us, our assumption was the white guy was gonna win. Whether you wanted that to be the outcome or not, you might have thought that that was likely to happen because that's how it has happened up until that point. So for many people, that was a disruptive uh, paradigm shift. And maybe that was part of why it caused fear or anxiety. But what we also know is that the day after, as in the next day, the day after the 2008 election of Barack Obama, there was also a tremendous spike in activity on hate sites. Places like stormfront.org saw a dramatic rise in online registrations. So we know that on the one hand, there was this positive event that many people viewed as a sign of progress. It was also followed by a backlash of sorts. Not only the political backlash we saw with the rise of the Tea Party and the politics political situation that we saw in Washington, D.C., but also in terms of increased hate activity. Um, people like the Southern Poverty Law Center that track such things have tracked steady increases since 2008 in um, bias incidents, um, both verbal harassment and violent as well. One thing, though, that happened during that 2008 period after the election of President Obama was a narrative that a lot of us heard. How many of you heard people talking about the fact that we were now a post-racial society? <laughs> groan, I heard that groan. Um, yes, but I, you know, like a lot of us, saw television with pundits talking about, you know, what this means, right, post-racial America. But what else has happened in the last 20 years? 
Well, that post-racial America idea pretty much went out the window with all of those televised police shootings, right? The notion of um, Black Lives Matter and the, uh, you know, whether Philando Castile or Michael Brown or you name your, you know, the one that shocked you the most, the fact of the matter is that that certainly the idea that unarmed people minding their own business could be stopped for a broken taillight and end up dead um, and have that captured on YouTube video um, seemed clearly an indictment of that notion of living in a post-racial society. And then we had an election, 2016. We had a presidential election and it was fraught with racial dialogue, dialogue's the wrong word, racial rhetoric, <laughs> racial rhetoric, and certainly um, it underscored the fractious nature of racial politics in our society. After the election in November of 2016, Again, the Southern Poverty Law Center documented a dramatic rise in um, harassment, not just um, racial harassment, but religious harassment, uh, harassment of people who identify as LGBTQ, harassment of um, certainly Im people who are perceived to be immigrants, whether they are or not, you know, certainly the Latinx population being targeted in a variety of ways. All of this leading us to come back to this question. Is it better? Well, let me just say, if you are 63 years old, as I am, and somebody asks me, have race relations gotten better in your lifetime? I have to say the answer is yes, right? So let me tell you a 1954 story to make my point. I was uh, the parent, I was born in 1954, as I said, I take a particular, um, notice of that because it was the year of Brown versus Board of Education. And I was born, that decision came in May, May 17th, 1954. I was born a few months later in September in Tallahassee, Florida, in the South. And my parents were both um, educated at Howard University in Washington, D.C., which is, I'm sure you know, a historically black college, a historically black university. And so they were both college graduates and my father earned a master's degree in art from the University of Iowa in the early 50s. An experience I can only imagine was unique. <laughs> but, um, but fast forward, now my parents are married and they're living in Tallahassee, Florida and my father is an art professor teaching at Florida A&M which is also a historically black university. And he wants to advance his career by earning his doctorate in art education. So he could have done that at Florida State University, which had a program in art education. Unfortunately, in 1954, Florida State, which is also in Tallahassee, just across town from Florida A&M, uh, was a whites-only institution. So he was not able to attend. But 
it was after Brown versus Board of Education, which means the state is supposed to be desegregating, but they're not because you know it was with all deliberate speed, which was mostly slow, right? <laughs> and, and so um, what did the state of Florida do? They had by law to provide access to graduate education, and so what they did was pay my father's transportation to go out of the state. So my dad got his degree at Penn State. He traveled from Tallahassee, Florida to Penn State, State College, Pennsylvania, um, and got his doctorate three years later in 1957 from Penn State, commuting back and forth. Now clearly, it would have been much easier to go across town um, and when my father completed his degree in 1957, he and my mother decided that they did not want to raise their children in Florida. So they moved to Massachusetts. I grew up in Massachusetts. And my father became the first African-American professor at Bridgewater State College, now known as Bridgewater State University. Now, I tell that story. Yes, we can applaud that. Um, he taught there for 35 years and was much beloved. but. Having said all of that, when I tell audiences that story, today it sounds ridiculous. You know, it sounds ridiculous. Let the state, my father would always point out, the state did not pay his tuition, they just paid his transportation, right? Um, and so it sounds like a ridiculous thing. And certainly today, Florida State is a very diverse institution, and he could easily have gone to Florida State today if that were his choice. So I can say in the last 63 years, there's been change. But what if you're 20? If you are 20 years old, you might answer that question a little differently. So let's look at this through the lens of a 20-year-old. If you're 20 years old today, it means you were born in 1997, the same year I published that book for the first time. When you were four, 9-11 happened. 2001, and you might not remember it. Let me just check, do we have any 20-year-olds in here? A couple in the back, thank you for coming. Okay, so if you were born in 1997, you were four years old when 9-11 happened, and you might not remember 9-11 yourself, but certainly your growing up years have been shaped by that post-9-11 American context. And, Fast forward to 2008, you're 11 years old, the financial markets collapse, the economy is tanking, a lot of people are losing their jobs, many people losing their houses. Maybe that impacted your family, maybe not, but it's likely that there was greater financial anxiety um, as part of your growing up experience. And then a month or two later, a few months later, we have an election and President Obama is elected. You're 11 years old, you're watching people cheering in the streets. Um, I'm sure many of you remember where you were when you learned that he'd won the election. I was in the campus center with a bunch of Spelman students watching on the big screen, and there was a lot of excitement, but we also were watching people excited at on, you know, all the places that the news was, was covering. Grant Park in Chicago, Times Square in New York, and you know, in front of the White House in Washington, D.C., multiracial gatherings, multi-generational gatherings of people celebrating this election. 
And if you were 11, you might remember that. You might remember seeing that. And you might even remember hearing people talk about how we are so post-racial now. But fast forward to 2012. You're 15 years old, and a young man in Florida named Trayvon Martin is killed. And his killer, George Zimmerman, is acquitted, not held accountable. And there were some others that happened around that time, too. Jordan Davis um, shot by someone in Florida as well. And so you might be wondering, what does this mean for me? Depending on how you identify, you might be thinking about that. Two years later, you're 17, maybe a senior in high school, and Michael Brown in Ferguson is killed, and Ferguson erupts. And Black Lives Matter becomes a slogan that you're hearing on television and seeing in your social media. And you're also hearing people talk about All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and the um, contentious nature of that conversation. And then you're 19. It's 2016, and Donald Trump is elected president. And when you turn 20, he's inaugurated. And a few months later, there is a deadly neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville. So someone asks you, is it better? What's your answer? If you're 20 years old, the progress that happened between 1954 and 1997 is ancient history. From your point of view, it's a very different arc of progress, or lack thereof. And so when I was working on this book, one of the things I was thinking about is what do these issues mean today to someone who is 20 years old today, or coming of age today, in terms of how they view race relations in the United States? We often hear that young people are much more accepting, much more tolerant, if we could use that term, um, of difference. But in fact, a recent survey of, uh, I, I say recent, 2014, uh, a survey done by MTV of young people in this cohort group, starting from age 14, which in 2014 would have been born in the year 2000, going up to as old as 24, so a little before 1997. But this representative group of young people from 14 to 24 participated in this survey, and one of the things that they found was that 94% of them said that they had witnessed an incident of bias, meaning they had witnessed somebody being treated differently or unfairly because of their group membership. What was interesting to me about that was not that so many had witnessed that. Unfortunately, that was not surprising. But what was surprising was that 76%, actually, that's not so surprising either, 76% said they thought talking about bias would help reduce prejudice, that it would be good to have those conversations. What was surprising is that only 20% said they were willing to have such conversations. Most of them said, 70 plus percent said 
they thought having the conversation might make things worse, might cause conflict. Only 20% were willing to speak up about it. It seems to me that we have a generation, not unlike previous generations, that cannot accurately be described as colorblind, but may be accurately, de accurately described as color silent. And that leads us back to where we started, which is how can you solve a problem without talking about it? We have to be able to have the conversation. So it's in that spirit that I am now going to invite you to join me in this conversation. Um, and the floor is open for Q&A. I'm told there are some microphones. Yes, we have microphones. feel awkward not applauding after. Oh, it's so. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, my wife is an educator, and she and her colleagues are here tonight. And my, my son, who is not quite 20, but near 20, and has yes. gone through some of those issues himself, uh, as well as my nephew being here at that young age as well. Um, the question that I have pertains to what uh, you alluded to in some of your lecture when you used the term backlash. Yes. It's kind of like a pushing back or a, a kind of a, a reflective bounce back dynamic that so-called mainstream society mm -hmm. has. And the term that I, in my research, have developed to, I think, more accurately describe it is white lash. Mm -hmm. And the reason I use that term is because when things happen amongst our people, we don't typically respond negatively. And what I mean by that is we could be broke. We could mm -hmm. be broke as a joke. And we won't necessarily respond negatively to that. You can mm -hmm. drain our accounts, and we won't go committing suicide or have a riot because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of my question has to do with, um, you know, as, as people have educated me, we need, in my community, we need to reach out and embrace the assistance that um, other folks want to provide, they want to give. And, I'm, I'm wondering, with regard to this concept of, of white lash, um, how, how can I trust, if I may just be honest, mm -hmm. how, can I, how can I trust that desire to um, support and help our communities as we develop curriculum, as we develop uh, systems and holistic responses, community-based, in solving some of the problems? And have you seen any of that in, in your research, especially your new research? Sure, so let me just, I'm gonna summarize the question as I was hearing it. You know, basically what I'm hearing, there's two things I wanna say. One is, so much I wanna say. Um, so let me, let me say that what I'm hearing you ask is how can I trust people who say they wanna be my allies, and in essence? given the history, and I think that's a great question, and it's one that is important for um, those who would be allies to understand why there should be some initial suspicion, right? I remember a book that I used to assign when I was teaching, and it's an old book, but it's still available for people who might like to read it. It's, I would find it 
I'm going to suggest that it's worth reading, um, but it's an old book, and it's called The Education of a Wasp, W-A-S-P. And it's written by a woman who, I don't know either, even if she's, she would have been a contemporary of Martin Luther King, so, you know, she would be, if she's still living, I don't know if she is, her name is Lois Stalvey, S-T-A-L-V-E-Y, but she wrote a book called The Education of a Wasp. And she talked about how, I'm going to just tell a little bit of her story. Um, this is, I'll try to do it quickly. But she was a white woman who grew up in the Midwest, and then she moved with her husband to, I think it's Lincoln, Nebraska. It might have been Omaha, but it was definitely Nebraska. So she moves to Nebraska, and this is in the 50s. And she's living in an all-white neighborhood. And she meets through um, a, a program, a local community program. She meets a black family. The husband in the family is a doctor, and they have four children. And he is, they're looking for a house that is big enough to accommodate their four kids. And the neighborhoods that black people are typically living in, in Nebraska, in the city where she lives, not big enough. And so she naively says to her new black family friends that um, there's a house for sale in her neighborhood. And that, you know, she's going to help them find a house, and she's got the perfect house, and it's in her all-white neighborhood. And so she decides to approach the person selling the house about, she, she had occurred to her maybe she should ask whether it's okay to bring this black family by to see the house. And the person who's selling the house says, sure, it's, it'll be fine. But when she does, as they say, all hell breaks loose, right? The, neighbor, the neighbors are angry with her. They're with, angry with the people who are selling the house. There's, it's very clear that this neighborhood is an all-white neighborhood, not by accident, but by intention. And people are upset with her that she is trying to disrupt. So fast forward, she decides to, um, she, she feels this is very unfair, and she wants to get involved in improving race relations and equity, housing equity. So she's working on this, but it causes trouble for her husband and his job. He works for an insurance company, which is why I remember it's Nebraska. It's like Omaha Mutual or someplace. Um, he works for an insurance company, and his boss is putting pressure on the husband. You know, get your wife under control. You know, she's rocking the boat. She shouldn't be doing this work. Anyway, make a long story short, he gets sent away. He, he doesn't lose his job, but he gets reassigned uh, um, to what people in Nebraska think is like Siberia. It's Philadelphia. <laughs> so they get, they get assigned to Philadelphia. And she um, in, is intentional. Now that she's in Philadelphia, she's intentional about finding a racially mixed community to live in. It's not easy, but she finds one, and her kids are going to racially mixed school. In fact, her kids end up going to a majority black school. But this is all to say that she wants to get involved in working in the black community as an ally. And she finds that people are suspicious of her. And when she gets there, she's like, why would anybody be suspicious of me? Do you know? Um, that, and, and she, this is her education, right? The education of a wasp. Even though I'm telling the story, read the book. Um, she, she 
there's a quote in the book, which I'm not going to be able to remember verbatim, but she says, you know, I came to realize the fact that people would even consider trusting me. You know, I mean, they didn't, you know, I had to prove my trustworthiness. But she said, if the shoe were on the other foot, if I had experienced all of the racism that has been so much a part of this history, I don't know if I would have it in my heart to even give me the opportunity to demonstrate trust, right? So, so on the one hand, I think it is important for people to demonstrate their trustworthiness through their consistent action. Consistency makes a difference, right? But, so, but my students, my white students, when they would read about this, they would be very sympathetic with this white writer and feel like, why should she, you know, why can't she just be seen as an individual, right? I'm an individual. Why can't they just see her as an individual? And coming to terms with the fact that we all have a racial group, whether you acknowledge it or not, you know, when I walk in the room, people see me as a black woman coming in the room. Sometimes they wonder if I'm biracial because I'm light, um, but I identify as a black woman and I walk in the room and that's how people see me and when people who we would label as white walk in the room, they are not always thinking of themselves as white people walking in the room. They're thinking of themselves as individuals walking in the room. But that history walks in with you and you can't leave it at the door even if you want to. And so that is part of the learning. That's part of the learning. So. I hope that helps in terms of your question. But the other thing I wanted to say was about the white lash concept, right? The, you know, I, I heard, um, I'm blanking on his name now, but uh, there's a newscaster, black newscaster, Van Jones, um, who the night of the election said this was a white lash, right? He described it that way, he used that term. But in general, if we look at US history, what we see is that you know, there, it's a repeated pattern of two steps forward, one step back. You know, there's progressive movement and then there's retrenchment. Progressive movement, then there's retrenchment. And um, we have had a period of progressive movement and we are now in a period of retrenchment. That is clear. And so the question is, how do we move forward again? I think we can only move forward again if we build coalitions it's not gonna be possible for any one group to do it alone. It requires coalition building, but coalition building requires trust building. And so that's hard work, but it can be done. Thank and, you. And that hurts to hear that, but yeah. my wife and you share the same mantra. We do have to <laughs> reach out and, yeah. and go beyond, you know, that area that's comfort, we, you know, represents yes. you know, what we're used to, so. I wanna so tell a story, I'm gonna get mm -hmm. another, I got another question here, but the story I wanna tell is, you know, I've been doing these book talks around the country and I was in Berkeley um, earlier this week at, at a bookstore, big book signing at a bookstore, and um, one of the, I, op I opened the floor for questions, and one of the first people to ask a question was an African-American woman who said, you know, I don't like to talk about race with white people. She just said, I just don't. I have, you know, based on my life experience, et cetera, et cetera, I don't like to do this. But then she said, but my friend got me in this diverse book club. 
where we are reading, you know, it's a diverse club, people of color, white people together. We're reading a book. We started with yours, she said. This is not a shameless plug. She said we started with <laughs> yours. Um, she said we started with yours and we've been having these conversations and she said we've been at it now about two years. So they started with the earlier version of the book. Um, she said, we've been at it about two years, and I, then I asked her, well, how do you feel about it now? And she said, it's fabulous. So here's to say that it is uncomfortable at the beginning, but when we do the work authentically, it does energize you, and it is possible to move forward. But thank you for your question. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Tatum. First, I want to thank you for your research and your writing and, and um, the contributions that you've made. Um, I know that one of the challenges I've had in talking with my own family members about race and privilege has been around the myth of meritocracy. Yes. And I find that to be something that's so embedded um, within American culture. Yes. And so I wonder if you could comment on how, through your research, um, you've seen that myth um, be challenged effectively, yes. and particularly thinking about family members and the holidays. <laughs> um, if, if there are things that um, you would recommend, uh, perhaps we do as white people, we do as all different, uh, as people of all different races and ethnicities to do um, within our families to have these frank conversations. Yes, thank you. Um, it's a great question. And when I first started teaching my class on racism, I was much younger, obviously, than I am today. I, st I was 26 years old when I started. And, the, um, and this was the hardest idea. Because if you grow up with this idea that people get what they deserve, which many people do grow up with that notion that you know the myth of the meritocracy that you know hard work is rewarded and if you have good things it's because you worked hard for them and it's not because you had some built-in advantage or you know and and the I, the notion that and and the things are not mutually exclusive right people can have built-in advantage and also work hard right it's not like you the fact that you have advantage doesn't mean you didn't also work hard or the fact that you have advantage doesn't mean that you never suffer, right? You know, both things can be true. But this idea, I mean, but the idea of racism, if we understand racism for what it is, a system of advantage based on race, that is in direct contradiction to this notion that, you know, people get what they deserve all the time, right? So, um, and that there's no built-in advantage or disadvantage. So I found that this is a hard idea for people to really wrap their brains around because it's like a whole, it requires a paradigm shift that is uncomfortable. And so I used to, you know, I, I write about some of the things I did in the book, in my classes, but I found that, you know, reading, talking about privilege, asking people to go out and observe, Many of you, I'm imagining, might be familiar with this article by Peggy McIntosh, you know, the knapsack of privilege, and um, unpacking that knapsack. And I would ask students to read that and then just, you know, go to the mall, sit somewhere and watch, you know, and see who's being followed around, who, you know, just, or to just pay attention in your daily life as you're going through. Oh, um, 
you know, I am being asked, this person's being asked for an ID. I'm not being asked for an ID. Hmm. You know, two people are standing in line. One person was there first, but somebody else gets served ahead, right? I mean, you know, those kinds of, you just notice. Just pay attention and notice. And people would come back, and they'd say, gosh, you won't believe what I saw. <laughs> well, actually, I would, but, um, you know, so it's hard. But I want to give you and others, this is a very useful way to talk to relatives or other people with whom you share um, similarities, right? A clo a, you know, when you're talking to somebody in your family, it's not always the case, but often you have the same uh, racial group membership, uh, same um, identity characteristics in some important ways. Um, and I find that the 3F method works, FFF. Now, <laughs> you're wondering, I know, what are those Fs? <laughs> Felt, found, feel. If you realize something today, I mean, I don't know what your journey has been, but there might have been a time when you believed in the myth of meritocracy. And if you don't now, what was it that shifted your thinking, okay? And so if you think about that, you can then have a conversation with someone and you can say, I felt that way, but then I found out these things, and now I feel this way. And what's helpful about that is that the person is listening to you talk about your own journey, and you never say anything derogatory about them. Right? You're not saying, oh, you idiot. You know, you're saying, you know, I felt that way, and then I found this out, or I read this book, or then I had that conversation, and I now feel this way, and that's why it's so important to me that we, you know, do these things. And um, there's one catch here, which is to say sometimes you have family members who have opinions that you never could agree with ever in your life, in which case you can't say, I felt that way. But... <laughs> But you could say, many people feel that way. <laughs> but I found out, um, and I, I, um, I know from personal experience that the 3F method helps uh, eliminate some of the defensiveness. So I hope that's useful this holiday season. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, hello. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you in particular, Dr. Tatum. Thanks. Um, my name is Reginald Gillens. Uh, that's, that's my dad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am 23 years old. Um, so uh, before I ask my question, I do want to give you just a little bit of uh, current events on what's going on in Seattle and what's been going on for the past couple years. Um, our incumbent mayor, y'all know his name. Yeah. That guy, um, he uh, made a public statement saying that he was trying to move towards zero incarceration for youth. Mm -hmm. And that was, I believe, in uh, March of this year. A mm -hmm. um, Couple months after that, there was a uh, large initiative to push forward uh, in the building of a new jail youth facility. Um, now, uh, with that being said, this is in one of the most diverse zip codes in the country, the 98121. Um, and uh, it's predominantly going to be affecting people of color. 
Mm-hmm. In light of, oh, also, keeping in mind that the new mayor of Seattle, uh, Jenny Durkin, uh, she was the largest proponent, I'm sorry, largest, uh, um, yeah, proponent of the new jail youth facility. So uh, she advocated for the jail. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, thank you. Uh, the largest advocate uh, for the new jail facility. Uh, all while amazing women of color, um, uh, 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 amazing woman of color, Nikita Oliver ran against her. And uh, there was also uh, other amazing women of color running for other offices. Dr. Erin Jones over here, shout out to her. Mm-hmm. These, these, uh, these amazing women of color had um, uh, their own agenda for Seattle. Mm-hmm. And the people refused to elect them. Came close, did great, and I worked on both campaigns, but refused to elect them. With that being said, as a, a young person of color, stepping into my manhood, reaching back to the younger people in my community, in what ways can I create a message or reach out to the white people in this community so that they're actually taking a stance for people of color and understanding that it does take the coalition building, that it does take coming to a table, but when we run for those seats of office to make that change happen, that mm-hmm. you know you gotta vote for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, how, do I, how do I switch that narrative per se? Well, so, you know, I don't live here, and so there's a lot of detail, I'm sure, that I don't have. But just listening to your conversation, one of the things I heard you say was that it was a closed vote, right? And so it seems to me if it was a closed vote, it wasn't a closed vote only because people of color voted. Absolutely, right? that's true, that's true. Which means to say there were some white people who were also voting for the more progressive candidates. And if that's the case, then it would seem to me that those, that's where you start, right? You, even though you lost the election, there were people, white people, who said, this is my vision too. I want to also see this happen. And so now that coalition of people needs to regroup and figure out what to do next. But there is a, there, what I, my point here is just that it's not just people of color, right? You already have identified some white allies because they voted in what was a close election. Can I be perhaps more specific? Um, you can, but then I, but I'm conscious of other questions, so. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, just being a little bit more specific, reaching out to uh, more wealthy, uh, cisgendered, straight white folks out there. Okay. 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 Super queer, and I love it. And there was a lot yeah, of people okay. that Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I got you. So <laughs> I got you. So so I'm still I'm gonna but I'm gonna stick to my answer in this way, right? Even so, I'm hearing that there were. Um, what I'm hearing is that the numbers of wealthy cisgendered white folks who were part of that coalition small in number. That's what I'm hearing you say. Uh, non-existent? I don't know. Uh, but, but the reason I'm saying this is because I'm going to tell you something I read after the Trump election. So after the Trump election, I was a little depressed. And, 
more than a little, I should probably say. But I read an article which I found really helpful to me. And the title of the, it was an essay in the Washington Post, and if you want to look for it, this, the title is something like this. What would the abolitionists do in the age of Trump? And so, and the article was written by a historian who basically talked about the fact that people who were, you know, the abolitionists who were pushing for the end of slavery were not immediately successful. They had repeated uh, defeats, electoral defeats, you know, trying to get things on the ballot, having stuff pushed back. And when that happened, they had to regroup and try again, right? And so, and how did they do that? They did essentially hand-to-hand -hand dialogue, meaning, you know, person by person by person, reaching out, you know, in a real grassroots effort. And it seems to me, in the coalition you already have, everybody who's part of that coalition has a sphere of influence. Some of, and in that sphere, are some of those people you're talking about, right? And if you use your sphere of influence, and this is not just for you, all of us, you know, one of the points I make in the book is that leadership matters, right? Leadership matters, but it's not just leader, capital L, you know, like, you know, president of the nation or mayor of the city. We all exercise leadership. Everybody influences someone. And if you influence someone, then you have to think about how am I leveraging that influence? And my prediction is that in that coalition that you already know about, there are people who have spheres of influence that could influence some of the people you're talking about. And so that, so the question is how do we use, our, how do we leverage the influence we have to bring about the outcomes we want? Obviously you made an effort and came close, yeah, right? Yeah, came yeah. close. Yeah which as disappointing as it was not to win, it's important to acknowledge it wasn't a complete wipeout, right? There was, you know, there was a coalition and if more influence can be used over the next, you know, year or two, then you can get closer and maybe win the next time. Um, and so that is, I think, key. Who's in my sphere of influence? And you'd be surprised if you really think about it, you know, who do you work with? Who do you, uh, you know, who's in your neighborhood? Who belongs to the church you belong to? You know what I mean? If you do that social networking, you'd be surprised how, you know, what's that expression? Um, you know, you're closer to the people you want to influence through those networks than you might think you are. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Degrees of separation. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. Very you. Much. Sure. I just want to say these are very powerful <laughs> yeah. questions and answers. We only have a little less than 10 minutes left, so I, we almost certainly won't get to everybody who's standing unless we really lightning round it. So. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm thinking that we could do it like that, which is let's hear what the questions are, and I won't answer until the end. Great. That's, that's good. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. I am a mother of a 22-year-old, uh, a mother of a one-and-a-half-year-old, and I'm a doctoral candidate at the School of uh, Library and Information uh, Science. And the reason that I want to talk about this is because you just mentioned networks and information. And so if we don't think about net neutrality in terms of a racial issue, mm -hmm. uh, the gentleman that came up first and he said, how do we build trust? When we're investing or using or uh, adopting technologies, if we don't know what values are embedded in them and whose bodies are affected or whose voices or opinions matter, uh, then we can further marginalize and um, create a greater divide as far as 
equal access to information, information equity, educational equity. I have a statement prepared that I'd be more than happy to share at another point. Okay. okay. Thank you. Well, if anybody's, you're going to stand in the back and people can talk to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. Hello, Dr. Tatum. I appreciate you for being here today. I appreciate you. you and I appreciate what you bring to the table. Um, I find myself as a gay black male who's also light skinned, um, somewhat lost in between my culture and starting to experience what I would kind of deem as, as a black gay complex. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any wisdom or words of advice uh, for somebody who maybe have that type of identity crisis as, as a black gay male who finds himself lost and just trying to figure out his own identity? And um, wonder if you have any experiences on how people maybe identify you or maybe how people look at you as a light-skinned individual when you really identify as black. Thank you for your question. We're going to hear some more, but I'm noting it. Thank you. Um, I'm a special education teacher and I'm just starting a doc program in special education and so I'm wondering um, you know in special ed we have a history of looking at like a deficit taking a deficit approach of looking at kids and I think we do the same with students of color instead of um, looking at what every every student brings to the table so I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are just on race and disability and then also the role of that research plays in kind of perpetuating systems of inequity and disproportionality within special education. Thank you. Hi there, my name is Kiernan and I'm the mother of two small boys, one who just entered kindergarten, so he's starting elementary school, and I am trying to raise my boys to not be colorblind slash silent the way that I was raised. Um, and so I do a lot of work on my own, but I would really like to push my school, my elementary school, um, to be a lot more proactive about this. Um, they have diversity written in the rainbow on the wall, but I feel like that's not quite enough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I'm wondering um, if you know of any models or curriculum or any research that's been rolled out in specific elementary schools that's worked. Maybe I could meet with my principal and talk to him about a couple of things that are going on or um, that are in process that we could possibly uh, bring to our own school. Great, thank you. Hello, um, I'm a chemistry and biology teacher at a school district close by. Um, I have a question regarding how do we address the systemic inequity and racism within the system of education? Because we still have disproportionate students of color being suspended and being disciplined, even in our integrated system. We still have fewer teachers of color, and uh, we still have fewer students of color in gifted and, and accelerated programs. So yep. how do we address that? Oh, that's true. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Tatum. Um, as a Latinx mother um, of two, my oldest being four years old, I'm wondering how to start preparing her for how others see her. And in this era of Trump era of people who are emboldened to spew their hate um, and messages, sometimes we've had confrontations, even just walking to the Seattle Aquarium. How can I prepare her to properly respond to that and to feel empowered and also in such a way that is where she can stand up for herself and mom won't get arrested? Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I, uh, I'm Courtney, 
And uh, I was one of the few who raised her hand to say that I have been having these conversations since I was knee high. Uh, thinking about the changes from the last 20 years, conversations I would say, particularly in demographics like this, tend to go really well. Um, and people really know what to say and how to respond. But getting the, the conversation to push beyond giving the right answers into action, into more than just kind of allies in name only, yes. um, has been a real challenge here in Berkeley too, um, in a lot of these really progressive spaces. I was looking for tips on how to push conversation past, yes, we did this, we had a conversation, now we're done, into substantive changes and getting, getting farther, moving progressive agenda. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Last one. Thank you so much, Dr. Tatum. Um, very quickly, I wondered if you could address the issue of colon the colonized mind, the issue of um, how to decolonize thinking, how to um, bring forth that the doctrine of discovery, which gave bib biblical uh, 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 reference to being able to exploit people and resources and the earth, um, and that has to be part of the discussion of racism and uh, the corporatization uh, and underlying greed as being the underlying source of all of it, the new Jim Crow, et cetera. Thank you. Okay. You can. <laughs> so I wish I were like one of those improvisation people who could just turn it all into one big story. I'm not uh, um, able to do that. But let me just say that some of the questions that were asked are I do talk about in the book, particularly how to have conversations with young children, for example. There's a lot in there. The question that was asked about um, curriculum for schools, I want to lift up the work of um, Louise German Sparks uh, and her now in a new 20th anniversary edition, Anti-Bias Curriculum, which is very useful, particularly for preschool, K, first, second, early years. Um, the questions as it relates to, you know, the underlying um, structures of racism in our society that was just asked, you know, we have a long history of that. The, my book has three parts, and I wanna, and this I think speaks to one of the questions that was asked, because it's not just about the book, it's about how we engage I think anytime you have a conversation, anytime you're talking about these issues or writing about them or going to a workshop or whatever, there should be three parts. What, so what, and now what? And a lot of times we talk about the what. In my book, the what is, what is racism? How does it function? How does it operate in our society? The so what is, so what does that mean in terms of how we think about ourselves and other people? That's the identity development piece. And then the now what is, now what do we do about that? And the now what, for me, is about dialogue, but it's not dialogue for the sake of saying I had a nice conversation. It's dialogue for the sake of mobilizing action, um, building those relationships, because it takes those people to get the work done. And so uh, to the young man who said, you know, where's my community? Um, as a young black gay man, Where's that community? We all want to find ourselves in community, in communities that look like our, you know, that with whom we have a shared experience. Um, and so that sometimes is harder to find depending on where you are in your social context. But 
finding that, that sitting together is finding community, and that's important. It can refuel you, and it gives you strength to go beyond your community, to build the coalitions you need, we all need, to take the collective action. I want to tell you one thing. There's um, the end of my book, there's something called an epilogue, and it's titled Signs of Hope, Sites of Progress. And I put it in there because I wanted to end the book on a hopeful note, right? Um, not just for you, the reader, but for me, the writer. Um, and, uh, and the fact of the matter is, every day, there are people in places doing work that can change the trajectory of our current path. Each of us has the power. I'm not, I don't have time in this moment to tell you all those examples, but let me just say they're in there. And so I hope that you will um, take advantage of reading about them and thinking, how can I use my sphere of influence? Because the people I'm describing are ordinary people who are using their own spheres of influence to change the trajectory we're on. We all can do that. And if we do, we won't be having the same conversation 20 years from now. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Tune in again soon.